0: We continue our study as we've been studying over the past several weeks about running our race with a pace of grace. And that's a mouthful, uh, but the study is really trying to focus in on avoiding spiritual burnout while experiencing daily renewal. You've got to have daily anointing of grace upon your life. Or else you're just going to be doing it in your own strength. And you'll find out sooner or later that you're not strong enough to do everything you need to do if you're always the one doing it. God has to work through you to do what He wants done. And so that's really the main idea behind the lesson series. And And we continue this evening. And we've talked about the face of grace. We've talked about several things. But tonight the, the sermon is titled just simply the change of grace. I just personally believe when somebody experiences grace in their life, there is a direct result of change. And I think that's a scriptural principle. Romans chapter 6 this evening, verse number 14, now we only have two points. So that means we're going to be out of here quicker than normal, so that's a good thing. Only two points. There's just seven subpoints under each, so <laughs> don't worry about that. But only two points, I don't think we'll be too long this evening, but I just try to follow the Lord's leadership in that as much as possible. Verse number 14 in Romans chapter number 6, the Bible says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in the brief moments that we have, I ask that you would please help me Lord, give me clear direction in the way that you would like me to take this sermon. And Lord, I pray that it would be a blessing to some in the room this evening, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, grace has been applied so far in our series in many different ways, but more specifically in terms of the outset of your salvation. In other words, if you're going to get saved, grace has to be directly involved in that. And we talked briefly last week how love, the love of God basically arrested the mercy of God. Mercy was a problem because God loved us so much. He he wanted to withhold the penalty of our condemnation which was hell and eternal separation from him. So mercy was a dilemma for God. He loved us so much that he didn't want us to see didn't want to see us go down that path of eternal condemnation so the solution to God's mercy was his grace. and grace and mercy are always attached at the hip. one works in tandem with the other. you see God removed our punishment with his mercy but God gave us a reward in his grace. And so grace so far has been applied in in a pretty a, a, a very specific manner but tonight grace is applied more in the daily life of the Christian. You see, we've talked about it so far in terms of your salvation, which for some of us happened recently, but for others of us it happened many, many years ago. Well, does that mean that you only ever get to experience God's grace one time in your life? Well, no. Grace is not just applicable at the point of salvation, but it is applicable each and every day in the life of a Christian. And that being the mindset tonight, I believe this, and this will be the opening statement of the message. Grace is the element in the Christian's life that inspires change. Grace is the element in the Christian life that inspires us to be more like God. It's His grace. In terms of our salvation, grace is the gift of God. But in terms of our daily life, It manifests itself as a desire to be like God. You see, at salvation, it's God's gift. But in our daily life, it is the equipping and the motivation to be more like Jesus. I have written, I've heard many times about people and churches that want to apply grace in a, a somewhat abusive manner. And certainly, that's what Paul is addressing here. He says, what shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He, he recognized that when he explained this doctrine of grace, there would be some that says, okay, so now we're free to do whatever we want to do. And he is now addressing that before the question ever gets uh, asked. And, 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 and I've, the only way I can think to illustrate this to you of how a Christian is to exercise grace and how living under grace might then uh, somehow limit our freedoms, if you will, is this. I've heard many times of a road in Germany, actually it's a system of roads called the Autobahn. How many of you have ever heard of the Autobahn? Now, the Autobahn is not known for anything, but it's known for one thing. You see, you don't know about the beautiful trees by the Autobahn. You don't know if it's curvy. You don't know if it's straight. But you know one thing about the Autobahn, don't you? It's that there is no speed limit. And I did a little research on that. And in fact, the Autobahn does at some points, for instance, residential areas and really curvy areas, they do have speed limits that are heavily enforced. But for over 50% of the Autobahn, they actually have a recommended speed limit. Did you know that? In fact, the speed limit is 130 kilometers per hour. That is, if we were to convert that to miles per hour, that's 81 miles per hour. That's what they recommend that you go. Now, if you've ever been to California, you know that they actually have roads that have 80 mile an hour uh, uh, speed limits. So that actually, when compared to California, 81 miles an hour doesn't sound that bad. But at those times of what their recommended speed limit is, it's not enforceable. In other words, they say, in order to be safe, go this speed. Now, you can go whatever speed you want. We're not going to give you a ticket. So where the problem arises is if you do go too fast and you cause an accident or you are involved in an accident, guess what? the liability greatly increases for somebody that didn't follow the speed limit. And it's actually very similar in the Christian's life. In the New Testament, the Bible makes the case that Christians are under grace. The Bible makes the case that we have liberty, and while I believe liberty is a very abused term in Christianity, the Bible makes a, a case for it and gives us the doctrine of liberty in the Christian life. But let me say this, liberty is not a, a, a permissible path to go as fast as you want in the Christian life. The Bible has some recommendations for you. And the Bible has some suggestions for you. And it says, all things are lawful, but what does it say? Not all things are expedient. It's funny, expedient. It's kind of funny that works out, right? All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Not everything that you can do is good for you to do. Sure, on the Autobahn, you can go as fast as you want, but what you must realize is you're causing great danger to yourself and to others. In the New Testament, the Christian believer has a lot of liberty to exercise a lot of things, but the Bible makes cases that you then become a risk to yourself and others. And we're trying to understand how grace applies to the Christian life. Well, the definition of grace, as we've talked about, is the unmerited favor of God. But the application of grace will result in an undeniable resemblance to God. Let me say that again. The definition of grace is the unmerited favor of God. But the application of that grace will result in an undeniable resemblance of God. Grace is the motivating factor that inspires you to be less like you tomorrow and more like Jesus. It's grace in your life. So tonight as we approach this passage... I want to tell you this, and this is what we'll study. The two, remember I said there's only two points tonight. The two unchanging truths about the changing work of God in your life. The two unchanging truths about the changing work of God in your life. Number one, it's very simple. I'll give you both points right up front. Dad does this sometimes, and we'll see how it goes. God wants to be the master of his children. Number one. God wants to be your master, number two. But God also wants to be the maker of His children. God wants to be, number one, the master of His children. We'll see this found in verses number 12 through 14. And and you'll find very very early on as you study these verses that the Bible removes any neutral positions in the Christian life. And what it's teaching here is you're only going to have one master, Don't you understand that whoever you yield yourself to, whoever you serve, that is who your master is? And it removes any neutral ground, really. How many of you remember this year's Super Bowl when we found out who was competing in the game? We found out it was the Philadelphia Eagles versus the New England Patriots. And I understand that there's some in this room that aren't right with God and like the New England Patriots... And I understand there are some in here in this room that are just aren't very intelligent and maybe like the Philadelphia Eagles. But I found myself this year in a position that I have rarely been in, and that is I had no idea who to cheer for. I didn't want the cheaters of New England to win, and I definitely didn't want the division rivals of Philadelphia to win. And so I sat on the sidelines, not picking a side, just ready to see whatever bad result came my way. That's the way a lot of Christians like to approach their Christianity. They like to view God and the world in a competition. And and let me just say this. God and the world are in a competition. At least for your interests and your commitment. God competes with the world all the time and it's such a shame that he has to... But God and the world are in a competition. A lot of Christians will say, well, God certainly has some benefits. God, I I guess He can bless me if I obey Him. I guess that He's good to me if I honor Him. and I guess that there are certain good things that will come from living for Him. But, on the other hand, the world has some benefits that I'll get to enjoy that I wouldn't get to enjoy if I live for God. In other words, there's pleasure in sin. Does the Bible not say that? It says it's only for a season though. And so there's these two competing forces in your life. And and Romans chapter 6 is essentially saying, like the prophets in the Old Testament, how long halts ye between two opinions? It removes the gray area. It says you now have to pick a side. Whether you do it in word is irrelevant. You are doing it in deed. You are choosing a side. This passage removes the neutral ground of the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon said this, If Christ is not all to you, He is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as part Savior of men. If He be be something, He must be everything. And if He be not everything, He is nothing to you. Charles Spurgeon is saying exactly what Romans chapter 6 is saying. You either have to choose all God or by default you were choosing all world. That's what Romans 6 is teaching us. And that being the case, there are three warnings that are given here. Number one, a warning of service. Look in verse number 12. The Bible says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it. In the lusts thereof. The word reign in verse number 12 means this. To exercise the highest influence or control over. It's saying that sin is dictating to some Christians what they are to do. In fact, those Christians have become servants to sin. Notice in verse number 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey... His servants ye are to whom ye obey. Notice that the Bible doesn't say, to whom ye say ye serve, that's who you are servant of. You see, service is not determined by our desire. Service is determined by our dedication. Whatever you find yourself serving, whatever you find yourself focusing on, whatever you find yourself investing in, whatever you find yourself working toward, that is your master, whether you want to admit it or not. And the Bible teaches us some very unique things about this warning of service. And you can search all through Scripture and find people who should have been serving God, but in, other, in a mistaken path, they chose to serve themselves. Probably none of them would be as good as Samson, though. You see, Samson was a man who God used mightily. He had the power of God evidently upon his life at all times like nobody else that I can recall in Scripture. You see, God came upon certain Old Testament prophets temporarily. For instance, Moses, when he was able to do miracles, but they were singular point in time miracles, but God had so uniquely gifted Samson that at any time Samson wanted to, he could pick up the gates of a city and drop them somewhere else. He's a unique fella. The Bible says he actually judged Israel for 20 years. God used him in a mighty way for 20 years. But we find in Samson's life a pattern of serving himself instead of God. And Judges chapter 14, we find his first mistake, and that was when he went down to Timnath and found a woman that pleased him there. And you remember what Samson's parents said? They said, Samson, is there not a daughter? Is is there not a daughter of, of your brethren that would please you? Why don't you just pick someone of our nationality, of our tribe, and our race? Samson, we believe that would honor God, and that would bring less of a a problem your way. And Samson said, get her, for she pleaseth me well. Well, that didn't turn out too well for him, if you know the story. And his problem began in chapter 14. Then in chapter 16, we find Samson. then again, very first verse of the chapter, I believe, Samson goes into a harlot. Just a few verses later, he meets his, uh, the one that does him in, Delilah. You see, Samson had begun this pattern of serving himself and enjoying the pleasures of sin more than committing to God. It was serving sin. Second Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds in our lives. In fact, the Bible says, they actually help us cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. I'm amazed that no matter how deep a Christian gets into any sinful action or attitude, God's word and God's power are enough to bring them back and put them in a right standing with Him. I don't care how far gone they are. It's an amazing thing. But I will, let me just say this, and let me recommend this to you, Christian. Destroy your mountains while they're still molehills. Don't get so far down the path that you, like Samson, realize sin took you so much farther than you ever wanted to go. You see, there's a warning of service. But secondly, there's a warning of submission and you can study any Old Testament saint, and you can just study really the doctrine of sin, you'll find that sin has a progression. Sin has a progression. Like Lot, right? What happened to Lot? Well, he just lifted up his eyes and beheld the well-watered plains. At first it was just appealing to him, and then it became alluring to him, and then it became overwhelming to him as he's now taken into captivity with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he's taken into a situation where the only good uh, 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 thing that he can find to do is to offer his daughters as a, a sort of sexual sacrifice to save the angels that God sent to save him. What a sad dilemma Lot found himself in. And you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible says that Lot actually vexed his righteous soul, meaning... At one point or another, Lot was righteous. And now he's doing things that he would have never thought that he was doing. Why? Because there's a progression to sin. And the progression is listed here in Romans chapter 6. It starts as a warning of service, but continues as a warning of submission. You see, sin is not okay just getting you off your path. Sin wants to take you and overwhelm you. The Bible says in verse number 13... Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. It's a matter of yielding. I want you to take your Bible to Romans chapter 7. It should just be one page over, maybe two. Romans 7 verse uh, verse number 14. We find even the greatest Christians struggle in this battle of flesh versus spirit. Of old man versus new man. Of the old creature and the new creation. We find even the very best Christians in the word of God deal with this struggle. I want you to see in verse number 14, the Bible says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Do you all know who the author of Romans is? Don't say it out loud because you might be wrong. But (laughs) This is one of the greatest Christians in the word of God. He authored almost the entire New Testament. This guy is an awesome Christian. And he says, look, I realize that I am carnal. When I read about Paul, I don't view him as carnal. Do you? I view him as like awesome. Like, you know, like if we were going to have posters in like some sort of Christian gym, Paul would be right there. Like our Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like this guy is the best. And he says, but I realize I am carnal. He goes on to say, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. I have things that I want to do, and it seems like I'm not ever able to do those. And I have things that I loathe. I hate them. I despise them. And it seems that I find myself on the occasion doing those things. He goes on to say, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. You know why that is in my flesh had to be put in there? Because something is in you that's good. Oh, it's not you. As Paul's saying, you are all through and through crooked, rotten, wicked. But man, something happens at the moment of salvation where God so divinely injects His Holy Spirit into our life, where we were rotten through and through. God puts in us the ability to now serve Him and please Him and live righteously, not because of us, but because of His Holy Spirit in our life. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, the desire is there, but how to perform that which is good I find not for the good that I would do uh, that for the good that I would I do not but the evil which I would not that I do now if I do that I would not it is no more I that do it but sin that dwelleth in me this is such a deep part of scripture we can't even understand it as we read through it But Paul is saying, I find a war that takes place in my life every day and realize he's writing scripture as he's doing this. He is qualified to write scripture and yet he's saying, I find nothing good in me. And if the apostle Paul is in that position, don't you think that you and I might share that same struggle? He goes on to say in verse number 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. God's put in me a new creation, and I love God's word, and I love obeying God's word. But I see another law in my members. Notice this next word. It's so important to our study. Warring against the law of my mind. Paul says, every day I wake up, and there's a battle raging on the inside a battle that that I want to win, a battle that I want to uh, uh, honor God, a battle that I want to serve God, a battle that I want to obey God, a a battle that I want to live righteously and holy and honor Him with my life. But there's a war going on because every time I try to live for Him, it seems like I find myself failing. Have you ever set out to do something for God? With the purest of intentions and the best of motives... Only to royally mess up and immediately your heart is smitten with guilt and shame. That's the war Paul is talking about. Where does grace come into this? How, How does grace allow us the privilege of looking like Jesus in our daily life? You see, the warning here is that we would not serve sin. The warning here is that we would not submit or surrender to sin. In battle, the only way you lose is if you die or surrender. And we know God's not going to allow you to die in this battle of flesh versus spirit. So what is the only way a Christian loses? Surrender. Here's my encouragement for you, Christian. This battle takes place in every Christian heart. It rages. It will go on until we are redeemed. And and like Paul says, Oh brother, it does not appear what we shall be, but we know when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Until we are made like Jesus, this battle will always continue in our life. But let me just say this. Fight the good fight of faith. Never give up. Never just be okay with failure. Never accept that you can live in sin and be okay with God. Grace is the motivating factor that says, Dear Jesus, today I will live like you by God's grace. A warning of service and a warning of submission. Notice, thirdly, and this is ultimately where sin wants to get every Christian, a warning of subjection. Notice the terminology used in verse number 14 chapter 8 wouldn't help us much but verse number 14 i'm sure it'll help us but not in our particular study verse number 14 of chapter 6 for sin shall not have what's the next word there dominion that's what it wants it wants to dominate you it wants to beat you down and put you into the place where you doubt God's power in your life because you've seen the bondage that you're in in sin. Where you say, God, I've been involved in it so long. God, I found myself here so long. God, I realize that I've done it so long that it's just a pattern of my life. It's second nature. It is who I am. And God says, don't you understand that Christians are not to be in dominion to sin? You're not under the law. You're under grace. He wants to make you. God wants to be your master. And there's a warning of subjection. And you'll find in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, Jesus says these words. No man can serve two masters. Do you all know the next part? For either he will hate the one and cling to the other or else he will hold the one and despise the other. Now that word hate is a very interesting word, don't you think? And I don't think there would be a single Christian, I don't know if there's a non-Christian in the room, but I don't think there would be a single Christian in the room that would say, yeah, I love my sins so much that I hate God. I don't think that that exists in this room. But there's also another passage which Jesus teaches us about, and he uses the same word hate. Do you remember what it is? He says, if any man follow me, and hateth not his father, mother, brother, or sister. Now, you've had preachers for years explain that to you, right? Uh, We've explained it from this pulpit. Jesus is not instructing his followers to then go hate his mom and dad and say, Mom, I hate you. Dad, I hate you. I'm going to follow Jesus. That's not what he's... Talking about. He loves people. He wants us to get along with Christian brothers. That's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? This is what I've always heard explained to me. But in comparison, right? Have you ever heard? To the love that you have for Jesus, the love of your parents, the love of your family ought to fade away in the background. You've heard similar things like that, right? Now, I don't think anybody would say you hate your mom and dad. I know nobody in this room would say you hate God. But maybe the application is the same. God is not saying that you will hate God as your master, but he's saying some Christians choose to love their sin so that in comparison to their love of their sin, their love of their God fades in the background. You with me? Nobody hates God, but maybe there's someone in here that loves their sin so much that God doesn't compete That's subjection. That's dominion. And that's where sin wants to put every Christian. The other day, uh, I don't know if you know this, but today we actually started, for the very first time we hosted, what we're calling our Homeless Outreach Ministry. Our Spanish uh, ministry wanted to do this. They have some experience. And I don't know if you remember this, but after the Winter Wonderland, we had a lot of pizza left over. And, and one of our Spanish men took those pizzas down to Fort Worth, and he saw all those people, and he saw them hurting, and he saw their needs. And so they came to us, and they said, Brother Andrew, we want to start a homeless outreach ministry. So the last Sunday of every single month, we're going to have a group of workers from our church, both of the Spanish ministry and of the English ministry, go up to Fort Worth so that we can minister to these homeless folks. You know why? I think that's a good idea, because a lot of times that's who Jesus talked to. The riches of this world have disillusioned people to make them think that this is where heaven is. But I tell you what, a man living under a bridge realizes it's got to get better than this. And so I think it's a great ministry. I'm very excited about it. But as I was talking to the man that's going to head up the ministry for Brother Franco, and we're going to work hand in hand with him, he has some experience down there. He told me this story about a man that came up to him. And this man was an older man, about 65 years old. He came up to him. He said, you know the difference between me and you? And and, and our Spanish man, the the leader of the ministry said, what's that? And he said, one decision. One decision. Think about that see it is amazing how when you start saying yes to sin how quickly the dominoes begin to fall that put you in places you never thought you'd be sin cannot be your master you know why because god alone deserves that right god wants to be your master number 2 the second point god wants to be your maker I don't think anybody in this room would question the fact that the Bible defends vehemently that God is the creator of all things. I doubt we have any uh, evolutionists in this room today, but if we do, I'm sorry, you're wrong. The Bible boldly proclaims that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I personally believe, and you can believe whatever you want, I believe the Bible teaches seven literal days to creation. Meaning that God is powerful enough to design everything that there is in six days. That's how powerful I believe God is. If God needed thousands and thousands and thousands of years to represent one day, man, he must not be that big of a God. My God doesn't need time. He's not captive to time. He's not bound by time. He is so God and so powerful that he can speak things and they just are. I believe that the Bible teaches us in Colossians 1 that God used the Son, Jesus Christ, to step out on the ledge of nothing. For the Bible says, for by him all things were created. And everything is upheld by the word of his power. You see, God used the Son to step out and create the world that we know. And that's the Bible. In fact, the Bible actually tells us that he created you. And while Have you ever been to nature and you've seen the amazing animals? I tell you, I've seen some of those amazing things in nature. I've seen elk that are so beautiful and so magnificent and so majestic. Bugle. And I won't do my bugle impression just for the sake of your eardrums. But I've seen steam come out of their mouth as these thousand pound animals with these giant sweeping horns. They're just majestic. I've seen it. And I thought to myself, man, God did that. I've I, I've actually been out on the water down in Arkansas and I actually had the privilege of seeing a bald eagle fly over, and I don't know if it's just because I'm proud to be an American or if it's just really that cool of a bird. But man, have you ever seen the majesty of a bald eagle flying? Boy, that's that's awesome. I've had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon and looking down into the Grand Canyon there and If there is an atheist that can go to the Grand Canyon and say, Yeah, I think that little puddle of water down there did this. You will really begin to question their sanity at that moment. Because you look down in that giant hole and you've seen pictures of it, but let me just tell you what. There ain't a picture in this world that is three-dimensional enough to tell you how big and deep and beautiful that canyon is. I thought to myself, there is a God in heaven that created all this. And while all the things in nature are amazing, you know what the Bible says? None of that took near as much time as you. I try to tell the teenagers this all the time because in our society today, teenagers deal with major depression, they deal with things like cutting, and, and, and let's be honest, let's face these subjects head on, let's address them for our teens. We can't just put them in the back burner and act like they're not a real thing, but our teenagers deal with stuff that we, probably you didn't deal with growing up, and so I try to tell them all the time, God took his time when he made you. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God may have taken time to create the elk. God may have taken time to make the bald eagle. But I believe that God carefully crafted each and every one of us sitting in this room tonight. God is your maker. But in the Christian life, God not only wants to be your maker, He wants to be the one that develops you. Too many Christians attempt to be made by themselves. You can't be more like God without God's assistance. God not only wants to be your master, he wants to be your maker. I want you to see in our passage tonight how he's going to do this. Number one, in verse number 17, the Bible speaks about a heart that has been changed by grace. The Bible says, but God be thanked. Well, why would it say that? Because God deserves the thanks, not you. God deserves the thanks, not you. But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin. You were subject to sin. You were in submission to sin. You had surrendered to sin. And now you're in dominion to sin. You were in that place. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. It was not a superficial obedience in this passage. What does it say? You have obeyed from the heart. You have sincerely sought after the Savior. And you've obeyed that form of doctrine. You know where doctrine comes from? The Word of God. And so the Bible is literally telling us that the Word of God was delivered to you And you submitted and obeyed, not on an outward conformity, but an inward transformity. And you changed as God worked in your heart. Well, how did he do this? Through his grace. How did he change your heart? Through his grace. See, grace does speak and work in the heart. What is it that the hymn writer said that wrote Amazing Grace? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You see, what he's referencing is the fact that grace was what caused his heart to tremble in terror at the judgment of God. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. I looked at God, and I was in awe, and I realized that I was condemned. And yet it was the same grace that taught my heart that I have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That no longer do I stand in, in, in terror of my God, but I stand in a place worthy to pray unto this God, worthy to seek after this God, worthy to love and serve this God. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear relieved. Grace ministers in the heart. Christian, we often apply grace as if it was a one-time application and hopefully that dose did us to get us to heaven. But grace must be applied each and every day. What is it that changes the tastes of a Christian? You see, I've often heard people talk about uh, overnight their taste buds changing, overnight their desires changing. I believe that In Christ, we're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. But I also believe that there is something that takes place in a Christian that as they develop in grace, they become more like Christ and sin affects them more. Just last night, my wife and I went out to supper. And just so happened the table right next to us was drinking. Every single person, as far as I can uh, recall at the table of about eight to ten people was drinking. And as it first came out, they were being okay, but as the night progressed, they got a little bit more boisterous. And, and I, as a younger man, I probably thought nothing of it, but I remember last night literally being sorrowful at what they were doing to themselves realizing that that is the only thing that can bring them fulfillment, and also realizing that it's so empty that tomorrow when they wake up, more than likely they won't even be able to remember the joy they've had. This probably never affected me back long ago, but why does it so badly affect me now? Well, grace has taught my heart. Grace has conditioned me to appreciate and adore the things that God loves and despise the things that God does not love. Just today, Charlie and Amanda came over for lunch and we were eating there, some ham that my wife made, and we're eating. We turned on a movie so that we could all watch. And the movie had a fairly good rating. I thought it was going to be okay. And about 15 minutes into the movie, man, the language just, all of a sudden just changed. I'm talking about like 180 on us. And... And all of us, almost in unison, like a barbershop quartet, audibly said, oh my. It literally hurt my heart that I had to hear that word. As a younger man, I probably thought nothing about it. I said, oh, it's not going to convince me to do that so I can stand it. Why does it affect me now and it didn't used to? You know why? Because grace has conditioned my heart. What does the application of grace result in? Well, it results in this becoming more like Jesus. And as his grace is applied, we resemble him more. Let me ask you as you've been saved now, years and years, has your appetite changed? Have your desires changed? Too many Christians find themselves stalled right in the Christian life, not growing, not conforming more to the image of Christ, not getting more like the world. You know what we are? We say we're satisfied, but the truth is we're complacent. We're readily parked in neutral, not willing to do anything for God. But grace causes us to be more like Jesus. God wants, you to, wants to be your maker, and He'll do this, number one, by changing your heart with his grace. And number two, a hope changed by liberation. In verse number 18. We'll touch on this briefly. We won't get too much into it, only because that's not necessarily what the series is made for. But verse number 18, the Bible says, being then made free, we've now experienced liberty. Liberty from what? The bondage and subjection of sin. Let's be clear, a lot of people misuse liberty as if it's a permission slip to do whatever they want. (laughs) No, what are we free from? We're free from the bondage and captivity of sin. And so now in verse number 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now realize you're a servant of something, either of Jesus or of sin. You're either serving righteousness or serving sin. There is no middle ground. The passage eliminates neutral ground. So you're serving something, and the the, the redeemed child of God serves or is to serve righteousness. Why? Because we've been made free from the bad bond, the bad taskmaster. We've been redeemed from the one who hated us and despised us and wanted us uh, living in pain and misery. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean this. Sin always promises much better than it has to offer, does it not? Uh, For instance, the man who decides to become adulterous, he says, oh, it's just fun. Oh, it's just simple. Oh, nobody will ever find out. But usually that sin develops to the point where his wife no longer uh, adores him or vice versa. He no longer appreciates and adores his wife and his family is ripped apart at the seams. Now, the, 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 the promiscuous relationship did not tell him up that, all that up front. What did it promise? Oh, just a little fun. It promised a little excitement. It, it promised a, a new look or a, 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 a new taste of something. But the end result, like the Bible says... Or the ways of destruction. It it will end in death. It's terrible. You don't want any part of it. Uh, How does an alcoholic begin? Well, usually it begins with one drink one night. And sooner or later you find the man who used to be a respectable man. A man that treated his wife well and treated his family well. Now you find him coming home and his children run upstairs because they're scared of dad. And his wife goes to the bathroom to seek retreat from this angry individual that alcohol has now made him. You see, it just promised a little relief from the work day and now it is ruining his life, that sin. And, and the Bible is telling us that we've been set free from that taskmaster to be servants alive unto Jesus. Alive to be able to serve Christ more effectively. Grace is what motivates us. Grace is what makes us as it's applied to our daily life. This morning, and really recently, a lot of people have been coming up and giving me updates on my physical appearance and let me tell you, I really appreciate that. Somebody came up this morning and said, "Brother Andrew, if you keep losing your hair like the way you are you 're going to be bald before too long." I said, "Well, praise the Lord uh, the pa- uh, The pastor of this ch- uh, church that I was in when I was going to college, the uh, president of the college that I went to, the, he saw me for the first time in quite a while the other day, and he came up to me and he said, Wow, Andrew, you've put on some weight since I last saw you. And I said, Well, amen, brother. Man, thanks for noticing. I've been working on my figure. Apparently, they don't think that I look in the mirror. Apparently they don't realize that I, I have this complex about my hair loss. Apparently they don't realize that I'm trying to go on a diet. Apparently they don't realize all this. They just like commenting on the way I look. Which to be honest with you, I don't care. <laughs> my wife still likes me. Amen. Yeah. But as readily as people see my outward change, I wonder if anybody notices the inward change. Now I'm being serious right now. If the only thing that you've noticed about me over the last eight years as I've served at this church is that I've aged, I've gained weight, and I've lost hair, that breaks my heart. I hope that somewhere along the way you have seen some sort of grace in my life that has matured me and developed me and made me more like my master. I hope I'm not up here just teaching vain words. I hope I'm not up here just reciting speeches. I hope that some of you actually understand that there is a man in this pulpit tonight that desires to know his Savior more today than at any point in his life before now. I hope you understand that there's a man in this pulpit that loves you more than he ever thought possible. I hope you understand that. And if all you see about me is a little hair loss and a little weight gain, what a shame it is that I've not done more for jesus and i wonder tonight if there's anybody else in this congregation that like me would wonder if anybody's noticed that about themselves some of us have been in this church for 5 10 15 20 years i wonder if there's a concern in your heart that people are actually seeing you grow in the nurture and admonition of the lord I wonder if you're truly worried that you are becoming more like Jesus or if this is just a social gathering. Because I'm telling you, Mountain Valley Country Club's going out of business. They need help. If you want a social gathering, go up there. We're trying to be more like our master. How are we going to do it? Through a daily supply of his grace in our life. We're not going to do it by hoping we can look more like Jesus. By trying to do more like Jesus? No. The only way we'll be made more like our Savior is if our Savior gives us grace to be more like Him.